Hey, you're listening to the audio version of Well Read with Justin Chapman. If you'd like to watch the video version, please go to youtube.com backslash C backslash Justin Chapman 15 or just search for Well Read with Justin Chapman in the YouTube search bar. Learn more at justindouglaschapman.com. Enjoy the show. everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Well Read. I'm your host, Justin Chapman. I'm so disheartened with what's going on these days. I don't even know what to say. COVID cases are getting worse and worse. And at the same time, fewer and fewer people believe it or take it seriously or take the necessary precautions. This whole thing has really messed with people's minds. Otherwise reasonable people give credence to ridiculous conspiracy theories and notions that just lack basic common sense. One in three people don't believe the death toll is actually as high as the official count. 50% are skeptical to take the eventual COVID vaccine. The politicizing of masks is so dumb and unnecessary. It's not about control or taking away your freedom. It's about protecting you and those around you. People are dying. It's really that simple. The arrogance of people thinking they know better, it's just astounding. If we had all followed the guidelines to begin with, we wouldn't have to shut down again. Now we're locked in a roller coaster that's going to take longer and kill more people. And many of those who don't die are still experiencing serious health problems weeks and months after contracting and getting over the virus. This thing is no joke. Don't take the risk. Be patient. Wait it out. In Los Angeles County, hospitalizations hit a new high over the weekend. Locally here in Pasadena, the youngest patient yet has died, 30 years old younger than me. Take this seriously. That means pretending everyone has the virus because any one of us could have it and there's really no way to know for sure. The CDC director said last week that the pandemic could be brought under control over the next four to eight weeks if we could get everybody to wear a mask right now. CDC director, appointed by Trump, not a deep stater, not a member of the secret cabal led by George Soros and Bill Gates that wants to implant chips into everyone's body or whatever the hell the conspiracy is. More and more evidence shows that masks work and that if everyone wears them, we'll save 40,000 lives. Even Trump has reversed course and now calls wearing a mask patriotic, like we all forgot that he refused to wear a mask for the past four months, but whatever. As John Oliver pointed out in a recent episode of Last Week Tonight, the pandemic has created a perfect storm for conspiracy theorists, and we're now heading into a truly scary direction that I frankly don't see any way out of for us. You know what it's like to die from COVID? Like drowning out of water, gasping for breath, all alone, separated from your family, friends, loved ones. Drowning alone. A total nightmare. You don't want that. Meanwhile, Trump is cutting funding for tests and contact tracing. Does he think if we pretend it's no longer a problem, it will go away? He has said as much. That Fox News interview with Chris Wallace was remarkable. He's still saying the virus is just going to disappear at some point. Yes, I know he said at his revived press conference this week that it's going to get worse before it gets better, but he's literally the last person to come to that realization. He gets no credit for being the last one to admit the Earth is not the center of the universe or that the Earth is round. Get with the program, guy. Luckily, Biden is up in the polls right now, but so was Clinton. 
I thought we learned our lesson last time when it comes to trusting polls. I hope the polls stay steady through November, but I know four months is a long, long time. So much can happen in that time. In 2016, Trump's Access Hollywood tape came out just three weeks before the election, and everyone thought he was done. And yet he won. I mean, he cheated with help from Russia and voter suppression from Republicans, but the point is that this whole thing will hinge on what happens during those last couple of weeks. So we have to be patient and stay vigilant. This is far from over. Right now, Trump is desperate, and that means he's going to do desperate things, desperate and mindlessly petty. As his niece Mary Trump pointed out, the cruelty is the point. As further evidenced by the good job he says police are doing in Portland, where secret police are kidnapping peaceful demonstrators off the streets. We're no longer on the slippery slope to authoritarianism. We're living it. Inept, bumbling authoritarianism, but authoritarianism nonetheless. Trump confirmed it himself in that Fox News interview. He's not going to accept the results of the election if he loses to Biden in November. Buckle in for a wild ride. It won't be boring, but it won't be fun either. American democracy itself is at stake here. Let's look at the latest COVID numbers for posterity's sake. According to John Hopkins University, there are 14.6 million cases worldwide with 610,000 deaths. In the U.S., there are 3.8 million cases with 141,000 deaths. So we got most of them. America first. In L.A. County, there are 156,000 cases with 4,100 deaths. In Pasadena, there are 1,727 cases with 102 deaths. With these kinds of numbers, we're seeing things like the Rose Parade in Pasadena being canceled, as was expected. That is going to have huge economic impacts that will reverberate through the community in the months to come. The tournament itself is having to lay off staff and cut its budget. We're really still just at the beginning of this pandemic. This is going to have shockwaves for a long time to come, felt in many different ways in our lives. Congress needs to get off its ass and extend the weekly $600 in extra unemployment benefits, and that's just a start. Once that goes away, we're going to start seeing some real panic and unrest unfold across the country. It won't be pretty. We're at a crossroads, and there are some pretty simple decisions our leaders can make, or not. There are some pretty simple things we can do to protect ourselves as well, or not. And then we will have to deal with the consequences of those decisions right now in no time at all. We have to come to terms with the fact that the government isn't going to save us. We have to look out for ourselves. On that happy note, how about a moment of levity? Let's check in with our senior influencer correspondent, Brad the Influencer. Bradford? Hey everybody, it's Brad. Um, so everybody's having a hard time figuring out what to do with themselves and how to get through all this. Well, something that's been helping me out is just having a hard, stiff drink. So um, let me show you what I've been putting together. Um, I cutely call it a quarantini because it's a, it's a type of martini, I guess. Um, so let's see, I start with making my own hand sanitizer, which I just mix equal parts aloe vera gel, isopropyl alcohol, and then I bless it with some of my um, healing crystals. So let me just put a shot of that in there, just get it really good. And then take whatever your favorite seltzer water is and just fill it up to about right there. I don't know how much that is, I can't tell you. But um, I also have some essential oils here. This one is Ylang Ylang. I have no idea what it does, but let's put that in there. And then we'll top it off with a nice little vitamin C. We'll take a sip. Hope that influenced you. 
Let's patch in our guest, the inestimable Jonathan Lethem, one of my favorite writers for sure. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Justin, for what you say and for having me on. Uh, Jonathan is an award-winning, genre-bending novelist, essayist, and short story writer. His bibliography is too long to list here, but some of my favorite books of his are Fortress of Solitude, Dissident Gardens, As She Climbed Across the Table, The Ecstasy of Influence, and most recently, The Feral Detective. His 1999 book, Motherless Brooklyn, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award, was recently made into a movie by Edward Norton. Since 2011, he has been the Roy E. Disney Professor in Creative Writing at Pomona College, a post previously held by the late writer David Foster Wallace. So, Jonathan, we both had stories in the new summer 2020 issue of Alta Journal. Yeah. And yours was an excerpt that got cut from your upcoming book. Is that right? Yeah, well, more or less cut. I mean, I, I, uh, I kept the, the bones of it. The idea of it is still there, but um, it's a very uh, writerly sequence and, and with a kind of excess of detail that uh, I was excited about writing, but it didn't make sense in the book. It didn't fit the voice of the book. So I stripped it down to just its uh, functional essence and this outtake uh, became a kind of a stray item. Mm -hmm. um, so, so tell us about your new book, The, the Arrests. Well, um, it's appropriate that I'm in that science fiction issue of uh, Alta because uh, the, the new book is set in a kind of a, uh, a, an unspecified, very near future um, in which there's a kind of social collapse. And it's, um, it's not exactly a utopia and it's not exactly a dystopia. It's more just a kind of uh, pastoral... Uh, anarchist uh, open space where, where different people do different things and, and society reformats itself. And um, I was, of course, <laughs> uh, uh, writing this long before we were in, uh, in a way, kind of a version of that ourselves with this pandemic crisis. But, um, but uh, although my book is, is prescient in some ways, it's also uh, radically wrong in another way because the the defining element of, uh, of, of the arrest and the, the thing that gives it its, its name is that all kinds of machines stop working. So there's no internet. Uh, not only, I should say, is there no internet, but there are no cars and no guns and uh, society is sort of um, pushed back to a, a very rudimentary technological level while still being made up of people like ourselves who are accustomed to cars and guns and the internet. So it's a very strange adjustment for people mm -hmm. and that that event where all the machines collapse and stop working uh, is what they call the arrest and that that comes out in november it's out in november just uh a little bit after the election uh last time around i i was published on election day uh, <laughs> um, and you mentioned you, you came up with the idea started writing it before the pandemic hit uh, are, are we are we starting to live into this dystopian future that many science fiction writers predicted and feared? Well, you know, I think that um, the reason I was always drawn to to reading uh, dystopias and and uh, ad admonitory stories about technology and and um, you know uh, paranoid stories about surveillance. Uh, when I was a kid, or, you know, also Cold War, nightmare, you know, apocalyptic stories, was that it already was the world we were living in, in a lot of ways, and that science fiction writers were 
just tuning into it, you know, and, and uh, exemplifying it with their stories. And those, those made a lot of sense to me because I, I, I felt, you know, my own nervous system responding to that part of reality. Now I think everyone feels it. It's, it's uh, the dominant way of understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I had talked at one point about our experiences in Slab City, California, which you said had an influence on your last book, The Feral Detective. Uh, yeah. You know, For those who don't know, Slab City is a former uh, military base east of the Salton Sea, where sort of fringe members of society live for free and, and create art. Um, what was your experience there? Did you stay there? Did you interact with slabbers? I did talk to people and, and drive around and visit a couple of different times. I never really stayed over there, and I, 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 I'd like to. I, I sort of wish I had. But I've also spent a more sustained time, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and overnight many times in the uh, area of Joshua Tree and Landers and the, the edge of the Mojave there where there's a certain amount of fringe activity too. It's not as, as quite as uh, uh, closely uh, articulated as the Slab City compound, but there's a certain kind of anarchist, uh, liberatory, you know, go your own way uh, living that happens out in the desert that interest, interests me a lot and, and that uh, feral, feral Detective obviously reflected it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the desert north and east of Los Angeles has such interesting people and, and, and art and things going on. It's such a kind of wacky place. Yeah, it's, it, it, there are lots of discoveries uh, still, still to be made. I mean, <laughs> I just recently uh, went out and explored the ruins of a place called uh, Lano del Rio, which was an old socialist commune set up about... 80 or 100 years ago, uh, north of LA, on the other side of Mount Baldy in the desert, and uh, you can go and sort of see the the, the fallen buildings and the, the aqueduct they used to try to, you know, bring some water out into the desert. But it was one of these stories of the failure of a, a water supply. They they tried to get a diversion from the the most nearby uh, uh, aqueduct, and they couldn't they couldn't do it. Hmm. Um, so, so what were your thoughts on Edward Norton's film a- adaptation of your book, Motherless Brooklyn? Well, I, you know, I, I gave the rights to uh, Edward Norton. I mean, I sold him the rights. I collected some money for it when the book was published twenty more than twenty years ago, wow. and he he announced right away a couple of things, and I and I and I and I liked meeting him and I like talking with him. And I also liked that he had clear ideas about what he wanted to do with it. He wanted to move the book into the fifties mm-hmm. and make it about urban development and as a, use it as a vehicle for his obsession with the history of New York and, and uh, that character, Robert Moses, who mm-hmm. demolished so many neighborhoods. And I thought, cool, this is great. You have a really definite idea. <laughs> you, um, uh, are going to write it and direct it, and I don't have to do any of that stuff, and I'm going to just go and write my novels. I'm not a filmmaker. So for me, that was always sort of the best-case scenario, was that mm-hmm. someone would take it and do something interesting with it. And I think he did. It's, you know, a lot of people who uh, are very de- devoted to that book have expressed their surprise that uh, it's so different and that uh, I don't care. 
But actually, to me, that's sort of the, the best thing that can happen to a novel because books and, and films are such different creatures. And, and I'd rather there be two interesting artifacts that are kind of have this relation to one to the other than, than have someone make a, a dull, but you know, pedestrian film just because it's an attempt to be dutiful uh, to the book. That doesn't usually work out. Right. Yeah, it was uh, amazing that he got uh, an original Tom York song for the for the movie. That was very cool. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, I was amazed when I when I heard it. But I also really loved the way the song moves through the film in different incarnations. It's not only a you know, it ends up being also a, like a Wynton Marsalis mm -hmm. song. And uh, there's, there's the music of the film is, is really striking. It, it's, uh, uh, it's a kind of a mashup of a lot of different forms of scoring and, and musical modes. Yeah, um, uh, when I watched it, um, I hadn't read Motherless Brooklyn in a while. And, 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 I, and I didn't remember Robert Moses' story being part of it. And, uh, but not, I recognize that. Not at all, yeah. Um, from Robert Caro's book, The Power Broker, the right. intro where he talks, where, where Moses goes in and demands the mayor appoint him as the parks commissioner. Yeah. Um, I thought it was an interesting combination of those two books. You know, it, what's interesting is that in a way, Norton was anticipating interests of mine, which is reflected both in Fortress of Solitude and, and Dissident Gardens, and in some ways even in Chronic City, which is I started writing about the kind of under- story of urban development and gentrification in New York City a lot in different ways in those books. And, um, but Motherless Brooklyn is, you know, the, the, the villains, well, the good guys and the bad guys in that story are kind of completely oblivious to that sort of thing. They're not, they're not the sorts of people that would ever think about real estate, <laughs> let alone gentrification. Um, whatever happened to the David Cronenberg film that was going to be based on your book as she climbed across the table? Uh, well, you know, that is one of the great what ifs for me. I, I love Cronenberg so much. And, and he had a script that he was excited about. It was written by the terrific LA novelist, Bruce Wagner. And um, I think that he was even at a point where he had, uh, you know, he was just about to be greenlit and uh, the thing fell apart and, really the uncanny way it was one of the uh you know a number of the books have been developed at different times but um but that was one of the ones that got the closest to being filmed without without making it which mm. is really, really uh sad for me but um subsequently uh uh michelle gondry is trying uh to make a version of as she climbed across the table so there's maybe some some hope for that project but it has no it, no dna in common with the cronenberg mm -hmm. uh version it's a com completely from the ground up uh, a restart of the idea of, of adapting that book well hopefully that comes through that'd be amazing i'd be very excited yeah um and and you're still teaching creative writing at pomona college yes uh of course i'll be doing it virtually mm -hmm. uh, or remotely i guess is the word for it uh in september but that's my that's my regular gig uh nowadays what's what's that experience like does it give you hope about the future of literature are, are young people still passionate about writing oh yeah absolutely i i'm uh, overwhelmed by the 
amount of uh, different kinds of engagement and commitment that I see. And I mean, these are undergraduates. It's not even an MFA program. It's 18 and 19 year old uh, students who are writing novels and stories and, and, and trying all kinds of uh, remarkable experiments. So it's, it, it keeps me quite humble. Um, and, and, and my students uh, keep me thinking too. Mm-hmm. What, what's your uh, writing schedule like? Do you, do you write every day at a set time? Like how disciplined are you about it? Yeah, you know, I, I sort of only have one rule and it's, it stands in for all the other things. I don't count words or count paragraphs or, or even really measure how many hours uh, in the day I work. I just try to write every day mm. when, I, when I'm going, when I'm, when I'm underway in a project, uh, especially a novel. It just seems to mean uh, everything to me to keep my hand in and, um, and not let the project ever uh, calcify. And so I, you know, I find that if I write every day, that's, that's good. That's a rule, a rule enough that does, does the job. The work stacks up. And um, what's your favorite book that you've written or do you even look at it? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, do have, I do have favorites, but they change. On different days, I'll, I'll sort of be reminded of, uh, of, of different books. It's, it's in the eyes of readers because, you know, I don't, I don't reread them. I just think about what it was like to, read, to write them. I, when I think of the books, I, I'm remembering experiences I had, not, not reading uh, journeys. But when writers, uh, when, excuse me, when other readers talk to me about the books, they come alive for me in my imagination. Um, I, I, I have a real fondness, uh, maybe because of the kind of conversation it attracts or the kind of reader that gets excited about it for uh, Chronic City. Mm-hmm. I think on, on a lot of days, that's my, I think of that as my favorite, but uh, it changes. Girl in Landscape sometimes, and, and uh, I do love Edge Climbed Across the Table. Yeah, someone just compared Chronic City to uh, Charlie Kaufman's new book, Ant Kind. Oh, well, that's very nice. I like that. I, I'm a Kaufman fan. I haven't read the novel yet, but um, but but that's cool. Yeah. Um, and um, so, how has the the COVID nineteen pandemic impacted your life and your writing? Well, I I'm a parent of two school kids, so I have very you know uh, typical kinds of challenges and, and experiences some of them pretty interesting but with the kids being present all the time it's, it's you know uh my, my experience isn't unique that way and um it's meant that every day is a kind of improvisation and 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 uh i'm not writing a tremendous amount but i'm doing other kinds of things and and uh thinking a lot there's a enormous amount to think about right now you know, I feel like I'm I'm uh, lucky in some ways. I finished a novel just before this mm-hmm. transformation, rather than having one kind of cleaved in half by by the changes in our world, not, mm-hmm. not just the uh, the the disease and the quarantine that it has inflicted, but the very intense political transformations that have become concurrent, and I think in some ways emerged from special conditions, you know, of, of, of everyone being uh, forced into contemplation. So it's, it's, it's okay. I don't, I don't beat myself up that I'm not writing a lot right now. I'm just sort of reflecting and, and gathering my forces and thinking about what 
I can do both in my writing and, and not in my writing, but in other ways to, to uh, meet, meet this incredible time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the sense I get is that it's either made people um, extra productive or, or less so than before. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think there was a manic phase right at the outset when people compensated for the anxiety initially with a lot of busyness. And I, I, I was a little bit prone to that in March and early April, too. And uh, it resulted in this one short story that, that was published in The New Yorker in May. And then I wound down, which was, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, there was a depressed aspect to settling into, you know, week five, week six, week seven of this experience. But I think also that uh, the, re- the reflections uh, overtook me in some ways. And of course, watching the news became doubly uh, uh, intense and, and provoking and, 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 uh, and, and, uh, and rich because of the protests that began. So it already feels like it's been two very different experiences in pandemic for me. Mm-hmm. And then um, just a, a final question before we go, uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, well, you know, uh, right at the moment, I, I decided to delve back into uh, the New York Review of Books series, and I'm, I'm reading that fantastic uh, reissue program of theirs. I'm reading a, a British novelist named Elizabeth Taylor, confusingly. Same name as the American actress and tabloid star, but she's a marvelous uh, post-war British novelist. Cool. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much again for your time. I really appreciate it. Can't wait. Uh, it's a pleasure to read your Thanks. new book. Thanks. I hope you like it. Thank you all for tuning in. As a side note, I encourage you all to take the United Nations survey about what you think the international community's priorities should be. Your responses to this survey will inform global priorities now and going forward. Take the survey at un75.online. If you need recommendations for Goodreads, I suggest you check out Jonathan Lethem's upcoming book, The Arrest, which you heard about moments ago. It comes out on November 10th. It's sure to be a riveting and relevant read. His other books are great as well. Check out his last book, The Feral Detective, a trippy novel that takes place in the surreal desert landscapes east of Los Angeles. Also check out his books that I mentioned at the top of the interview, Fortress of Solitude, Dissident Gardens, and As She Climbed Across the Table. You really can't go wrong with a Lethem book. Stay tuned for new episodes of Well Read every week or two. You can find the show on YouTube or the Pasadena Media TV channel. Check for showtimes at pasadenamedia.org or watch it on their streaming app. I'm Justin Chapman signing off. Learn more about my work at justindouglaschapman.com. And remember, A life well read is a life well spent, so go read a book. Till next time.